Good in talk. Hi everyone. What drives us to get out of bed every morning? What motivates us to go on living? What is behind the human will that is pushing us forward, achieve great things, do stupid things? European philosophy had somewhat two contradictory answers. Some explained human motivation as God-given. Since God has created us, he has also installed a free will inside us to achieve things in life through the carrot and stick of heaven and hell. But since the 15th century, science started to challenge the religious doctrines for being too simplistic. So European philosophers offered an alternative answer, rationality. Since we are rational beings, we first think and then act to push things forward. So generally, the two answers for our motivation to act was explained through God or rationality. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, however, rejected both God and reason as motivator of human action. So he offered an alternative to both religion and rationality, nature. He argued that we are driven to live because there is a mysterious force inside us, bestowed upon us by the universe itself. A unified force that unites all humans, animals, and even objects. We have little or no control over this mysterious force, yet we are all bound by it. So our rational conscious mind is just the tip of the iceberg. While many philosophers ignored Schopenhauer, he had a profound influence on artists, musicians, novelists, but most significantly psychoanalysts such as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Today I'll look at Schopenhauer's life, summarize his philosophical ideas, and tell you why pessimism is good for you in today's world. So sit back, get yourself some German sausage and beer, and let's talk pessimism and Schopenhauer. But first, who was the man himself? Arthur Schopenhauer was born in 1788 into a German-Dutch merchant family in Danzig or modern-day Gdansk in Poland, back then part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Five years after his birth, the city was annexed by the Kingdom of Prussia, so the family moved to Hamburg to expand on the business and experience a bit more freedom. In 1797, when Schopenhauer was nine, he was sent to live in the northern part of modern-day France. Since his family owned a business, as a young boy he was sent to many European countries to teach him some business skills. His family belonged to the new merchant class so they were not religious, which explains Schopenhauer's atheism later on. Back then the church was a huge obstacle for capitalism to grow as money and profit were seen as somewhat dirty. You were meant to be poor because getting to heaven was through the eye of a needle. Schopenhauer's family even supported the French Revolution in the hope of more freedom from religion and traditions. But Schopenhauer didn't enjoy the merchant training program his family was offering. Instead, he was more interested in philosophy, music, literature, and poetry. He was a big fan of Goethe, the greatest German poet who incidentally attended his mother's parties. In 1805, his father drowned in a canal, perhaps accidentally. Schopenhauer, however, thought his father had jumped on purpose because he suffered from bouts of depression and anxiety. Schopenhauer himself had the premonition that he might have inherited the same paranoia from his father. Just as I discussed the Japanese writer Akutagawa who had a similar anxiety of inheriting his mother's insanity. While Akutagawa ended his life, Schopenhauer continued on living despite being nicknamed today as the father of pessimism. 
The death of his father allowed Schopenhauer to tap into his generous inheritance he had left behind. He invested his money and lived off interest alone, but he still wanted to pursue his education to become a university professor. In 1809, he enrolled at the University of Göttingen to study medicine. While at university, he also attended classes on philosophy, psychology, and metaphysics. A year or so later, he switched to philosophy. As a moody, pessimistic man, he knew the sight of blood and open surgery wouldn't do him much good. With philosophy at least, you can sit in a chair and write books or give lectures. He was interested in Plato's idealism and Kant's rationalism. Not just that, he switched town moved to Berlin University, but unfortunately he came to dislike most of his teachers. The more he studied, the more he got bored of religion and became more and more atheist. In 1813, as he received his doctorate from the University of Jena, the French bad boy Napoleon was tearing through Europe like a tornado. Schopenhauer, fearing that he might be drafted into the Prussian army, fled Berlin to take refuge at his family home. The pessimist was also a pacifist. Napoleon is one thing, but returning home, he saw his mother living with her boyfriend, a man 12 years younger than her. He was disgusted. He could never imagine her with a man other than his own father. He moved to a small town, Rudenstadt, where he spent his time hiking in the mountains or forest bathing, something Nietzsche too enjoyed, while also writing his university thesis, titled On the Fourfold Root of the Principle of Sufficient Reason, which became a precursor to his most famous work, The World as Will and Representation, which I'll discuss later. The thesis was praised by his hero, Goethe, but Schopenhauer angered the great German giant by criticizing his work on the color theory, presenting a subjective version to Newton's more objective explanation of color. Also, I should point out that his mother was a very well-known writer who, unlike many female authors of the time, didn't use a pen name. In fact, the first German woman to use her own name, Johanna Schopenhauer. She published a few novels, travel books, and biographies. But Schopenhauer himself wasn't a big fan of his mother's writing career. The two trashed each other's writing. The mother said nobody would read his son's writing in the years to come, and he in return said people would remember him for centuries to come. The son was right. In 1814, when Schopenhauer was around 28, it was the last time the mother and son met each other. For almost 17 years, they didn't exchange emails, phone calls, or DMs. Joking aside, the mother was a party animal who enjoyed life, while the son was somewhat of a pessimist recluse who brooded over life. Only in 1831, they started sending letters to each other. His mother accused Schopenhauer of being too moody, pessimistic, and arrogant, stuck in his own ways. The son blamed his mother for his father's death, allegedly through suicide. While his father was sick in bed, his mother would go out partying, drinking, and enjoying life as a self-centered, narcissistic woman. Schopenhauer had a low opinion of women in general, perhaps due to his mother. In 1814, he moved to Dresden. It was around 1816 when he was introduced to the Indian philosophy of Upanishads and Buddhism. He says, quote, in the whole world, there is no study so beneficial and so elevating as that of the Upanishads. It has been the solace of my life, it will be the solace of my death. While in Dresden, he focused on his masterpiece, The World as Will and Representation, which was eventually published in 1819. 
While waiting for the publication, he traveled to Italy where he got worried about money running out because he was enjoying pizza a little too much. As a cautious pessimist, when he returned to Berlin, he found himself a job at the University of Berlin, where he began to teach right next door to another German giant, George Hegel. The two disliked each other a lot. Their philosophies are extremely different. Since Schopenhauer studied natural science and medicine, he called Hegel a clumsy charlatan who knew very little about the deeper reality of the world. He thought Hegel was too superficial in his understanding of reality as a progressive historical process. All Hegel saw was a smoke, but he had no idea of the fire beneath. But is the irony though, Hegel attracted hundreds of students with history-based dialectical philosophy, while Schopenhauer had only a few students. To make matters worse, one of his neighbors, a woman, sued him for pushing her down the stairs, which she won, and he had to pay her a pension for almost 20 years due to her disability. To leave his troubles behind in Germany, he traveled to Italy again. He spoke good English, so he enjoyed the company of English tourists and dandies who followed the footsteps of Lord Byron, escaping the gloomy weather in England. He also tried to learn Spanish so he could read his favorite novel, Don Quixote, in the original Spanish. He also had some liaison with a few women. He wasn't keen on monogamy and preferred polygamy or polyamory. In 1831, he fled Berlin, but this time, instead of Napoleon or army conscription, he was scared of cholera epidemic. He moved to Frankfurt, where he lived for the rest of his life. As a cautiously pessimistic man, he enjoyed taking a walk to keep himself healthy. He cherished solitude. He says, quote, We can only be entirely ourselves as long as we are alone. Therefore, whoever does not love solitude also does not love freedom. For only when we are alone, we are free. As his writing career progressed, he became more and more well-known, especially among artists, musicians like Richard Wagner, novelists such as Gustave Flaubert, and philosophers such as Friedrich Nietzsche. There's also an argument that Schopenhauer's philosophy may have influenced the biologist Charles Darwin. But his influence on psychoanalysis perhaps is the most profound. In 1860, he died in his sofa aged 72. He never married nor had any children. There are theories that he might have fathered two kids. Today, Arthur Schopenhauer is considered one of the most influential philosophers of the 19th century. Now I'll discuss Schopenhauer's philosophy. Schopenhauer's most important philosophical work is The World as Will and Representation, published in 1819, some 200 years ago. In it, he outlined his main philosophical outlook. But to set the scene, let's talk about another German giant. As was the case with most German philosophers of his age, he had to respond to Immanuel Kant, who revolutionized Western philosophy by reconciling two divergent schools of philosophy, rationalism and empiricism. Rationalists say we have innate knowledge of the world that unfolds itself as we develop in life from birth to adulthood. But empiricists argue everything we know about the world comes from outside through our senses. Kant brought them together saying that it is a bit of both. Humans have innate rational faculty that makes sense of the world by putting a structure to it. Without our mental structure, our knowledge of the world would be chaotic and disorganized, so we cannot make sense of it. 
So Kant made the human lens central to understanding of the world. In other words, Kant argued that we humans are not passive receivers of knowledge from outside world, but we also impose our mental structure to the world. Kant also divided reality into two distinctive realms. Phenomena, which is our experience of the world through our five senses of smell, touch, sight, hearing and taste, and noumena, which is the world in itself which we cannot know. We can see a mountain, but we can never fully cross what it feels like to be a mountain. So for Kant, phenomena is our way of knowing the world, and noumena is the world in itself, which is hidden from us. Schopenhauer took Kant's distinction between the knowable world of phenomena and the unknowable world of noumena to develop his own theory of will and representation. For Kant, the empirical world we experience is only the appearance of the noumena, but the noumena itself we cannot fully know. For Kant, it made sense since he believed in God to imparted humans with rationality a kind of window to organize the world and give it a structure. Although Kant is not considered a Christian philosopher, his world view was from that of a Western Christian tradition of seeing humans somewhat separate from the world almost godlike creatures of God, exiled from the Garden of Eden. Of course, Kant was a rationalist, but rationalism as a philosophical tradition has its origin in ancient Greece, but it has been closely aligned with Christian view of reality that God has given us our rational faculty. Schopenhauer was not religious, so his argument is not based on us humans being separate from the world, but very much part of the world. In fact, we are the world that is ruled by the same will. In other words, all living beings and even non-living beings can pre-assembled or pre-installed with this blind will. Since built in inside each being, we cannot fully know. Schopenhauer was not religious, so his argument is not based on us humans being separate from the world, but being very much part of the world. Schopenhauer argued that there is no distinction between two Kantian worlds of phenomena and noumena. They are one and the same thing, or two sides of the same coin. It is will. It's the driving force in the universe, but we only see its representation, not the actual will. Thus, it may appear as though there is a distinction between our experience and the objective world. But in reality, there is no distinction between the objective world and a subject who experiences it. For example, when I talk, I can also hear myself. Or when I walk, I can also see my legs moving, but I also feel what it's like to walk. In other words, the experience is both external, legs movement, but also internal, the feeling or intuition I get from my legs moving. Schopenhauer argues that they are both one. He calls it will, but it's hidden from us, we can only see its manifestation or shadow as the philosophy of Plato. Schopenhauer's idea of the hidden will is somewhat similar to Plato's theory of ideal form and the shadow. For Schopenhauer, there is no such thing as outside or inside world, it's one and the same thing. We might think anything outside our skin is separate from us, but Schopenhauer says as soon as your skin touches an object, it is no longer outside experience. So for Schopenhauer, to think that we are separate from the universe is a mistake, we are one and the same thing. To explain Schopenhauer's will, let's talk about love. If you ask someone why you got married, they might say it's because they fell in love. But for Schopenhauer, it's a surface level representation of something entirely different. It's the will to life. We're driven by the urge to procreate and love is just a convenient surface level representation of the sexual urge to procreate. 
For Schopenhauer, will is the blind driving force in the universe that motivates us to have sex and representation is our perception of that blind will which we call love. So the will to life is our passion for life that we share with all living beings including animals and plants. Since the will is blind and universal, we each become its eye through which it looks out to the world. For example, in humans, the will uses each individual to find the opposite sex to make babies. Love is nothing but the representation of our biological urge to procreate. If you go about sex in a rational manner and consider the consequences of having a child, the cost, the time, effort and a lifetime of constant worry about the children that result from sex and the anguish about their health, we would not have sex. The cost of sex for women is higher due to 9 months pregnancy and childbirth. While this makes them more cautious and selective than men, it still doesn't stop them from having sex. For men, however, there is no physiological cost to having sex. The urge is so extremely strong that men work hard and even put their lives in danger to acquire resources, status, power, fame and everything in order to have access to more women. So everything we do in life, acquiring wealth, status, makeup, fashion, fitness, plastic surgery, etc., we ultimately do to attract a mate to procreate with. The best time we can have a rational mental clarity is right after sex, when the sexual goggles are off, which is similar to beer goggles. A great example of Schopenhauer's pessimistic outlook on love is depicted in one of the most beautiful novels of the 20th century, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which I have discussed here a lot. The novel's depiction of love as ultimately a disappointing experience when on the one hand boredom or on the other hand jealousy seeps in to ruin things for the lovers. Perhaps a crude metaphor for will is a gigantic iceberg, while our human consciousness or perception of it is only the tip of that iceberg, which became a metaphor for the psychoanalysis of the unconscious mind. Schopenhauer says it's impossible to know the will because as soon as you observe it, it becomes representation of that will. It's like quantum mechanics, your observation of a particle changes the position of particle. So it's a kind of catch-22. To understand Schopenhauer's idea of the will is to imagine everything in the universe is one thing, let's say a single atom that oscillates between everything that exists. For Schopenhauer, we are sandwiched between a rock, the irrational chaotic will, and a hard place, our rational desire for order. On an intellectual level, we want order, happiness, fulfillment, etc. But on a deeper level, our innate blind will to life is illogical, chaotic, directionless, and endlessly striving. This causes us suffering. Our intellect seeks order, but the blind will doesn't obey order. On an instinctual level, we want sex, food, company almost endlessly. But in reality, we cannot fulfill those desires all the time, so our rational mind tries to tame or put a limit on those things. But the blind will is insatiable. As a result, we are constantly crushed between a rock and a hard place. So ultimately, when it comes to this will, we are not free. But the will itself is free. If it doesn't achieve its goal through us, it's happy to destroy us and go through someone else. We want to tame it, but our attempt often makes us frustrated. In other words, we can act freely, but we cannot will freely, as Albert Einstein said. For example, we cannot eliminate our innate sexual drive, which is the biggest cause of suffering for men. 
We can temporarily satisfy it, but we can never eliminate it. Schopenhauer says, since we have a body, we are all at the mercy of this blind will that urges us to do things. To fully understand Schopenhauer's will, it's important to discuss the Buddhist idea of the self, because it was massively impressed by Buddhism. He says, quote, If I wish to take the results of my philosophy as the standard of the truth, I should have to concede to Buddhism preeminence over the others. According to Buddhism, the thing we call the self or I is nothing but illusion or mirage. For the Buddhists, consciousness is universal, but the self is a mere mirage we acquire in our lifetime. In other words, our essence is not the self we call me or I. Our essence is consciousness. The self is a fake identity or ego we create around that consciousness. Once we feed this ego, it becomes insatiable with desires to have things like money, power, fame, and food, and sex. So this self or ego becomes the main source of our suffering in life. We suffer because our ego wants things and never satisfied. In Buddhism, they practice non-attachment to reduce suffering. We want shiny toys, but we have to suffer to get them. But once we get them, we want newer or shinier toys. This never stops. So Buddhists practice discipline by refusing to obey the blind will or inner desires. But in Buddhism, it goes even deeper, which is called the negation of the self. In other words, you get rid of the thing you call the self, an imposter who is making you do things, chase money, sex, drugs, and food. Schopenhauer has a similar solution. The only way out of suffering is the negation of the self, when you become one with the universe. Because in the deeper reality, there is no self as me and you, but one universal will. We individuals are merely its eyes that it glances to the world. Also, since Schopenhauer believed in a single universal will manifested in us all, he saw compassion as the recognition of this blind will. The word compassion literally means passion with. While passion is considered irrational, when it becomes compassion, it's just manifestation of this universal will. So recognizing the blind will is one way to understand compassion. Schopenhauer's compassion is different from the conventional morality. For example, a lion eating a gazelle may seem awfully cruel, but Schopenhauer says they both obey the same blind will. We humans judge things through the lens of pleasure, and anything that reduces pleasure is considered suffering, therefore immoral. But the blind will doesn't see things through the individual lens. The only way to cope with this suffering is through the intellect and art, which allow us to move to a state of non-existence like the Buddhist nirvana. Artists, while creating art, as well as us, while enjoying that work of art, experience a moment of non-being while in awe of its beauty. When an art takes our breath away, we truly experience non-existence, a kind of blissful moment. Schopenhauer influenced the German composer Richard Wagner, whose music represents Schopenhauer's volatile and oscillating blind will. For Schopenhauer, music didn't represent the phenomenal world, therefore it was free from the will and urges, and instead it fostered compassion. When we experience beauty, artistic or otherwise, we move beyond the distinction between will and representation, or subject and object. He says, quote, It is as if the object alone existed without anyone perceiving it, and one can thus no longer separate the perceiver from the perception. But the two have become one, 
the entirety of consciousness entirely filled and occupied by a single perceptual image. Experiencing artistic beauty liberates us from the blind will, so we become pure, willless, painless, timeless subject of cognition. You enter a world of ideas, not worried about the physical world of matter. You are so mesmerized by the object of beauty that everything else becomes irrelevant to you. For Schopenhauer, music represented the purest of all artistic forms because music is timeless, universal, and understood by everyone and everywhere. Even the ancient Greeks saw music and mathematics coming from the same source, nature. To understand Schopenhauer, let me discuss Hegel. Between the two, Hegel has been far more influential in the last two centuries through the works of Marx in particular. But Schopenhauer's influence has been more in the realm of psychology and evolutionary biology. Hegel was a German idealist whose philosophy was centered on the idea of progressive historical process. He believed we are the product of history. In other words, we think or behave the way we do because we are born and brought up in a period of history. An ancient Greek and a modern German are vastly different in their thinking and behaving simply because they lived in different historical periods. In other words, time makes us and history shapes us. History is a continuous progression of time. Schopenhauer thought there was something far deeper than time. Time is just the surface level veil and beneath is chaos, aimlessness, all ruled by the blind will. Hegel says we build upon those who came before us, all the while things are progressing and improving. His dialectical process was when two opposites, thesis and antithesis, come together to make something new called synthesis, which is an improvement on the previous things. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, says we have the illusion of seeing things improve because we don't see the blind will. The will has no destination or a perfectionist utopia in mind. It's aimless, restless and eternal. A pendulum that oscillates forever, but always stuck between wanting more and quickly getting bored of them after you get them. It's like kids wanting new toys, but as soon as they get the said toy, they are bored of them. The same with shopping, drugs, food, sex, etc. While Hegel is correct that an ancient Greek child may have craved a different toy to a modern German child, but the wanting of the toy and the getting bored of that toy is still the same. So Schopenhauer says historical progress means nothing to our insatiable desires and urges. Hegel believed in Aristotelian teleology or progress of history that is moving towards the betterment of the human race. For instance, progress means more freedom, more food, more comfort, and more equality. But for Schopenhauer, history, culture, progress are all an illusion or surface level as in Maya and Hinduism, and beneath is chaos, aimlessness, and terrifying will. Since the will is aimless, it makes no sense to talk about progress. You could say Hegel's progressive philosophy is somewhat similar to a Christian view of us heading towards heaven which Marx took and turned it into a communist state of the future in which everyone lives happily and equally. Schopenhauer might say that's nothing but a pipe dream because we are ruled by the blind will inside us. No matter how beautiful the outside world becomes, you cannot change human nature. That's why Schopenhauer is called a philosopher of pessimism. Hegel has an optimistic outlook on history that things are getting better as we travel into the future. But Schopenhauer thinks in the grand scheme of things, 
progress is just an illusion. The ancient Greeks suffered as much as the modern man does despite their societies being vastly different. Because on an innate level, we are stuck between a rock that is the blind will urging us to chase sex, food, power and more, and a hard place that those things are not always available, and even if they are available, we soon get bored and want something else. To give an example, we get addicted to food, drugs, shopping, social media, etc. just to quench the thirst that that blind will has bestowed on us. Even in a future utopia, we will still seek the objects of our desire and get bored of them soon enough. So Hegel was an optimist, albeit slightly utopian. Schopenhauer, however, was a realist. Hegel thought humans were becoming better, while Schopenhauer thought the hardware changes but the wiring remains the same. Now the question is, is Schopenhauer's pessimism a good thing in a modern society? In physics, the second law of thermodynamics is entropy, meaning that everything is moving towards chaos. In other words, the universe is moving towards disorder. To put simply, it's easier to destroy than build. It's easier to cause pain and suffering than pleasure and joy. Our conscious mind is more alert to pain than pleasure. According to Schopenhauer, the pain of losing something or someone is far greater than the joy of winning something or someone. In other words, as we age, we become more and more cautious and careful. Despite having a good chunk of inheritance, Schopenhauer was never fully confident in his income. Why? Because he says, pain is infinite and joy is finite. Our human mind is wired to avoid pain at all costs. This has become the basis of our rationality. Rationality is our way of minimizing pain, so our mind is burned more by negative experiences than positive ones. Past traumas often prevent us from future joys. Schopenhauer also says we're not here to be happy, but to procreate and continue life. So understanding the blind will, Schopenhauer says, allows us to lower our expectations. Today, the modern humans have an insatiable desire for happiness that almost everything we do is tied to our goal for happiness. For Schopenhauer, happiness is nothing but an illusion for striving, struggling, and oscillating between desire and the wall. Just as love is an illusion for sex, happiness is an illusion for an attempt to escape the will by satisfying its insatiable desires. For example, in order to feed a fire, we have to throw more wood in it. So Schopenhauer's pessimism allows us to lower our expectations. The biggest enemy of happiness is having a high expectation, which is constantly crushed by reality. Schopenhauer brings us back to the reality of life that is full of irrationality, suffering, pain and restlessness. Understanding reality might sound pessimistic, but it helps us manage our expectation. So it can ultimately help us become more content with the harsh reality of life. Life is not about happiness, comfort, or blissful order. It's about chaos, disorder, discomfort, and suffering. Author Schopenhauer dedicated his life to philosophy in an attempt to find a non-religious explanation of life. He finally settled on a simple idea. We're driven by a blind will to continue life. He was thinking about our evolutionary drive some 40 years before Darwin articulated in his theory of evolution, being at the heart of life on earth. So we're just tools in the hands of nature and evolution. Thank you for listening. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.